0: This morning we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, starting with verse 14. And the last time we covered the first 13 verses, I'm breaking this up into pieces because, you know, it's just such a great portion of Scripture. It's a long chapter, uh, and really the point is for us to take in as much information and really digest it. And what we saw the last time, and I, I titled it, Hit the Ground Running, you got Mark's gospel. It's very fast-paced. He makes his point. He moves on. He starts with John the Baptist, and then, of course, with Jesus. Uh, and this morning we're going to look at the middle portion of it, and then save the last uh, third of it for next Sunday. But we're going to look at really. Uh, we went from Jesus's inauguration, where the Holy Spirit alights on him. He's baptized. The Father speaks. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are all in attendance. And so we go from his inauguration to basically what I would call ministry preparation, calling of disciples, etc., going into the synagogues to to preach. And then from that point, by the time we're done this morning, he's going to hit heavy into ministry, and then we're going to cover that all the way up to the cross. Uh, As I always do when I cover the Gospels, I always want to go to the other three and put it all together so we get a real well-rounded picture of what's going on. I enjoy doing that. And then you can kind of see in your mind, if you ever have a chronological Bible, it kind of shows you in time sequence where all the gospels fit in. And it's really sharp. I've got one of those at home. So we're going to jump in in verse 14. It says, Now after John was put in prison, John the Baptist, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So John's in prison, but the message of repentance, the preparation of the heart to be seated with the word of God, still needs to go out. And here we get our first glimpse of Christ's ministry preparation. Now we talked extensively about repentance, so I'm not going to go deep into it. You can get that from last Sunday's message. But it does seem that Satan won a little battle. He won a little victory. He took out John the Baptist, had him put in prison. And eventually he gets uh, beheaded, unfortunately, by King Herod. Now, what did Jesus do in response to that? Did he get all frustrated? Did he go back to the Father and say, you know what, these people are intolerable. Look what they did to the forerunner. I can't believe what's going on, so I'm just going to come back to heaven. It's not worth it. No, Jesus was not a quitter. And I think that, well I know that, in every facet of his life, his personality, his mannerisms, we can always learn something and we can emulate what he does. He wasn't a quitter. He picked it up. He picked up John's message and continued to run with it. And brothers and sisters, there's going to be times where we need to pick it up as well. God may call us at inappropriate or inopportune times according to our lifestyle. I remember many years ago when our last pastor departed, And I was asked to be the interim pastor. I still remember my words. Absolutely not. (laughs) Here I am. But God worked on me. He worked on my heart and, of course, my wife did as well. And the rest, you know, is history. But I want to encourage you. It's not just for the pastor, pastors, the elders, their wives. It's for you as well. You know, some of you know that God is calling you. He's moving you towards something. And you're you're just kind of maybe pushing it away. It may be, listen, you just got your life established. Everything's going really well. What do you mean God wants me to do this? But we have to answer the call because we're not completely fulfilled as a child of God until we're doing the thing that God has has made us to do, that he's purposed us to do. So I would encourage you to pray about that this morning. Now, a little chronological note. In John chapter 4, Remember when he meets the woman at the well? That's about the same time period as this. You know, there's this moving from uh, Judea to Galilee, which I would say were commensurate to our counties in New Jersey. And he he did a lot of traveling, a lot on his feet. So what happens is he meets the woman at the well, and that's in John chapter 4. I really enjoy teaching that. as one of my favorite portions of scripture. You can get that on the website. So he continues to preach, repent, and believe. And in addition to that, it does appear that before this, chronologically, he is, he's in, you could say he's in John chapter 3, where he meets Nicodemus, who's this religious leader at the time, and Nicodemus is asking him spiritual questions, and Jesus talks to him about what it means to be born again. So very appropriate how everything coalesces and gels. There's incredible harmony in the four Gospels. Even though they were written to completely different audiences, they all gel together. And he says to Nicodemus, you know, John 3:16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And he speaks to Nicodemus about the Holy Spirit and how you really can't see the Holy Spirit, but you can see the effects of the Holy Spirit on a person's life. So you put that all together, and you have. What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean to be saved? Well, we repent. We look at our lifestyle, we, we find out about Jesus, and we, we see that we don't measure up, that we are sinners, we're flawed, we need a Savior. So we repent, we change our mind about where we're going in life. And then, you don't just repent, because without believing, you, it leads to... Um, destitute remorse. So with repentance, now the heart is fertile. You, re- you believe in the sacrifice that Jesus made for our sins 2000, 2,000 years ago on that cross. You trust him as your Lord and Savior. He fills you with the Holy Spirit, and you're born again. So pretty good stuff there. Jesus said the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. We've covered this extensively. Uh, there was a prophetic time clock, so to speak, in the first century. A bunch of scriptures bear that out in Daniel chapter 9, Genesis 49:10, and Haggai 2, 6 through 9. So today, nobody can really claim, well, they can't biblically claim Messiah, although some still do. But if we know our scripture, we're inoculating ourselves from false doctrine. Okay, that's important as well. Uh, I can't tell you how many people I run into that are churched people. They're churched, but maybe they're not really in the word. Uh, maybe it's more of a lifestyle. And they'll tell me that, you know, I went somewhere and I was deceived for a while. You know, this was a cult. And I hear that a lot. But the thing is, we'll find out immediately within the first one or two services if it's a cult, if we know our scripture. So it's really important to know our word. Verse 16 And he, and as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Come after me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. So our second glimpse... This morning's message into ministry preparation is the fact that he calls his disciples, or he calls some of them at least. And you know, he he keeps going, and he finds Matthew in the tax booth, and eventually he has his twelve. But if we go back to John one, that does appear. That's the initial introduction to Jesus Christ, the disciples, uh, and Jesus. You know, the fisherman, and he does this great catch, and uh, it overwhelms the nets, and so forth. So we see that Jesus pretty much already met these guys, but this is the calling to discipleship. Now, Simon is also Peter. We have to make that clear. And Peter gave Mark much of his content for the Gospel of Mark. What I find amazing about God is that he sees things about us. He sees things that he can use that we might not see in ourselves. And what do I mean by that? Well, let's look at this portion of Scripture for a minute and elaborate a little bit. How is this often portrayed? Maybe in children's books or maybe what you've been taught or maybe uh, illustrations of, of Jesus calling the disciples, especially the fishermen. What do we often see? And I've seen the pictures. Jesus is calling them, and these men have beautiful black, jet black, wavy hair. They have finely pressed robes, They have nicely groomed beards in a beautiful wooden boat and they're hoisting up a bunch of smiling fish, right? And they're speaking the king's English to each other. Peter, perchance, would you hand me that net? And in addition to that, they're singing psalms while they work. Listen, if that's your impression of Jesus calling these men, I, I hate to burst your bubble for the next few minutes. Fishermen back then were probably more in line with the Deadliest Catch series. Okay? They were rough guys. They were sweaty. They probably smelled like fish. They were probably crude and used profanity. How do I know that? Because in Luke 5.8, and I love that Luke says this about Peter. In Luke 5.8, when Peter sees Jesus' pretty much first miracle with the fish, he says this, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter knew who he was. Peter knew who the Lord was. And Peter felt that I want you to make sure you understand that if you call me or I become friends with you, I'm really a mess. You know, I'm not the type of person that you want to bring into the synagogue or such, or, you know, maybe read the Bible. I'm not worthy. And you know what? I think that the Lord saw the humility in Peter. But these men were not refined. They were not polished. They were not articulate like the religious men of the day. However, Jesus couldn't use a lot of the religious men because they were very prideful and sanctimonious. And a lot of their deeply held traditions couldn't be broken. They would not allow that to happen. So Peter, so Jesus uses these guys. Now, when we look at the totality of Scripture, even with Peter walking with Jesus for a while, what do we learn about Peter? He's impulsive. He can be argumentative. He can be hot-tempered. And on a few occasions, he's given in to Satan's temptation. And Jesus says, I could use these guys. Isn't that amazing about God? Maybe the people that we would choose for ministry or for evangelism, for a mission field, maybe you are not the same type of people that God would choose. And you know why? What does the Bible say? That God looks at the heart. But men and women, unfortunately, were deceived by outward appearance, but guys, he's right through the outward, the hair, the dress, how we comport ourselves, our manner of speech, and he looks right into the heart, and that's when he decides who he can use and who he can't use. Now, there's some good qualities of fishermen back then, and let's discover some of these. Number one, they weren't lazy, they couldn't be, because if they were lazy, they would starve. They weren't quitters, they were determined, patient, adaptable, fearless, and they knew how to work together as a team. We also have qualities, brothers and sisters. We all have bad qualities. You know. And, and the smart Christian and the mature Christian realizes the difficulties that we have in our own lives. We look in the mirror and we realize if nobody else sees it, we see it. And we ask God to work on those things because they really are a hindrance. Sort of like what Peter said. But we also have natural ability. You know, when God formed us in our mother's womb, he knew what type of abilities we would have physically and naturally. And when we're born again, he also gives us new abilities. He gives us spiritual gifts. So he can use, he can work with the, with the difficult ones, and he can stretch us at times and use trials in our lives to try to work that stuff out. But he also will impart to us spiritual gifts because he knows how he wants to use us. And I think that is awesome, personally. I think the coolest thing is to run into a Christian who maybe has been a Christian for a few years, and they come to me and they're so excited about the gift that God has given them. Without pretentiousness, just saying, you know, I think that this is what the Lord has gifted me to do. It's really exciting. See, God can use anyone to further his goals. And I want to encourage you with that this morning. You know, Alistair Begg, um, Scottish preacher, I enjoy his series, and I was listening to some on the role of the pastor, the role of the deacons, the role of the elders, you know, the role, the role, the role. And then it gets down to, I popped this one in, the role of the congregation. In 2014, in New Jersey, sometimes the Christian culture is, listen, I'm just coming to church. I got things to do. I'm going to write a check. I'll put it in the basket. That's my contribution. No, it's not true. Not according to the scripture. Everybody in this room is important. Every one of you, God has imparted, if you're a believer, spiritual gifts, and he wants to use you in a mighty way. So keep that in mind and be encouraged with that. Everybody is important here. And I really enjoyed listening to that sermon, the role of the congregation, because it shows the usefulness of every person who's a part of the church collectively. Now, notice something else. They all dropped what they were doing to follow the Lord Jesus. Now, if the Lord Jesus Christ came to us today physically, how many of us would drop what we were doing? Please don't raise your hand. This is an entrapment question. If in your mind you said, well, I would drop everything. If you're not being used by now and you're not serving the Lord, what's the difference? Because the Lord has a lot of work to do today. And that's still a tomb mentality. When we refuse or we have other things or the world offers us so much better stuff than being used by the Lord. That's a tomb mentality. We're behaving as if Jesus was in the tomb. Remember the disciples? Actually, the the women showed more faith than the men when he was killed and put into the tomb. They kind of got scared. They were huddling together. They went back to doing what they were doing. But they didn't act as if Jesus was rising from the dead. And when we're not used by God and we just think that the world has something better but i just want to get to heaven that's a really that's a tomb mentality because jesus was resurrected he ascended and he directs our actions and he wants to use everybody in the church we don't think that he has work to do in this messed up world i mean read the paper i mean don't you want to be a part of 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 something bigger than yourselves i know i do I want to make a difference in this world for positive, because there's enough evil, there's enough destruction that we see. So it's it's a good thing, it's something to think about. Verse 21, it says, then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So we'll look at our third, really, ministry preparation that really runs headlong into full ministry here. Now, Jesus often taught in the synagogues. And synagogues um, were there because in the 6th century BC, the Babylonians destroyed the temple and all the whole spiritual setup. So the people had to go, they felt they needed to go somewhere. And this is actually a neat historical point. So what happened was, Synagogues started to spring up. They were kind of like, you know, mini houses of worship. And the rules for the synagogue were if you had 10 males above the age of 12 years old, you could start a synagogue. And then there would be different roles in the synagogue. Now, itinerant rabbis would come, and the synagogue would often open their doors to these itinerant uh, rabbis to preach. And we know that Jesus would go to these synagogues and he would start to teach. As a matter of fact, in Luke 4, we see one situation where Jesus presents himself as the Messiah. His word was good, but they didn't like his application. So here's another one of those examples where he's in a synagogue. Now, here's a a very curious statement. It says that Jesus taught as one having authority, not as the scribes. Well, who are the scribes? Well, we have your scribes, your Pharisees, your Sadducees, your Essenes, your your zealots, uh, your Herodians, and such. And you saw that you could see the schism in Judaism, unfortunately. Each person kind of gravitating to a different uh, field or doctrine or even political realm. So he, here's what, these were the scribes. The scribes basically started out as copyists. They, would, you know, they didn't have Xeroxes and, and copy machines back then. So somebody had to do that very tedious work. And if they made a mistake, they would take the whole scroll and crumple it up, throw it in the fire, and they'd start all over again. Man, I wouldn't want that job. But uh, that was a very tedious job. But these guys pretty much memorized God's word because they copied it so much, they became teachers, they became ecclesiastical lawyers, they had their little niche in the religious system, and also they became uh, the elites in society. Okay? They, they gravitated to different groups. But this says that Jesus had more authority than them, and they were the authority. So how does that work? Let's put this in perspective. What they try to do is propagate the word. Unfortunately, they manipulated the word at times, but Jesus was the word. Perspective check. The scribes and the teachers often quoted the rabbis, their commentaries, as fact. You know, back then there was this big debate between Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. And, you know, it kind of went away from the word of God and it went into these different rabbinical teachings. However, Jesus preached on the authority of of the word, and not on the authority of man. And today, too, you can tell. There's some pulpits that the word's not even mentioned, not nary as scripture used. It's all about man's philosophy, and that becomes problematic because now we're starting to get into the battle of opinions. And, when I, and there's times that I'll, t- I'll say to you, well, this is just my opinion, take it or leave it. But when I preach out of the word, the word is something that we have to obey, and we have to absorb into our lives. My opinion means nothing. So as we go into this, another angle is that the religious system had become corrupt. It had become corrupted. Now this is, you can find these in in extra-biblical sources, not just the scripture. Jesus said, I need to be about my father's business. The father, you know, saving souls. However, what happened was the religious system moved from being in God's business to the God business. And all you have to do is say it differently, and it, it totally changes the meaning. And that's why people don't want to come to church, because it's the God business. And I put those, um, those articles out about um, time, to rebu- it's time to reboot Christian TV. I think the guy's name is uh, Leo Grady. And uh, he talked about Christian TV after the death of Paul Crouch. And he said there really needs to be some reform, because this is really becoming the God business, instead of being in God's business. So it's time to reflect on that. It happened back then as well. So Jesus came in, and he started preaching from the word, and people were astonished. Like, we never heard this before. All we heard of these guys' opinions. So continuing on, as he's preaching, it says, Now there was a man in the synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. So the first encounter with a demon in Mark's gospel is recorded here, and there's some interesting points that we have to make here. you ever wonder about demons? you ever wonder about possession and if it still happens? Well, I'll tell you what, I believe it does still happen. As a matter of fact, I have a theory, especially with the criminally insane, and I had this theory for a long time. I think that we're just medicating people who are demon-possessed and taking their body and and bringing them down with Haldol and these other drugs to a a zombie-like state but the real problem is that there's a possession issue. And then some years later, I actually read about David Berkowitz. Remember the son of Sam Killer? When I was a little boy, I remember reading that in the paper. Well, in prison, he was pretty much exercised by a, a clergyman. And all of a sudden, now he's a born-again Christian. And he's asked for forgiveness. And he's actually, when he comes up for his parole healing, hearings, says, I belong in here for my crimes, for what I did. I don't, I don't need to be let out. I don't want to cause the families any more pain. This is a, a different person. And he doesn't even have an angle. There's no motive here. So I really believe that. I believe that there are people today that are demon-possessed, and the solution is lock them up, chain them up, drug them, just get them out of society because they're dangerous. But th- what they really need is, is the demon removed from them. Um, I remember one time in the church, too, we were dealing with, very, many years ago, a woman who was causing a lot of problems. And a few of us had sat down with her. And the more we referred to the word of God, the more she started growling under her breath. And and I'm thinking to myself initially, I didn't just hear that. (laughs) So, but you know, this is what happens. People are walking around today possessed by demons. And then there's all types of questions. Well, how does this happen? Well, sometimes people open themselves up. They do certain things. They play certain games. Uh, to call ghosts or departed souls and stuff. And they, they pretty much open the door to themselves to receive this type of um, demonic possession. Portals, so to speak. But I don't want to get too caught up in that. And, and there's actually a whole subject called demonology. But Jesus snapped his finger pretty much and euphemistically and, and they were gone. Uh, so that can happen. What about a demon coming into a house of worship? My pastor said to me, they will come in because they're emissaries of Satan and their design is to destroy, especially where there's a work of God. They will come in to try to tear down. Fascinating. James 2.19 says this, you believe there is one God, good for you. Even the demons believe and they tremble. So keep that in mind. To be born again doesn't just mean to say, well, I heard something in church, and yeah, I believe Jesus died a few thousand years ago for our sins. To be born again is to believe in who he is, is to make him Lord of our lives. Because the demons believe in him, but they're not saved, they're going to hell. The demons know more about Jesus than we do. They know more of the Bible than we do, but they're not going to heaven. So it's something to consider. Coming to church doesn't make us saved. Having a relationship with the Lord is what saves us. Trusting in what he did, truly trusting, and not mere mental assent. Now, I want to read another scripture in Matthew 12, 43. And this is kind of a, this is a creepy scripture, for lack of a better word. It's one of those scriptures that kind of makes your hair stand up a little bit. In Matthew 12, starting with verse 43, Now, this is Jesus speaking. He says, When an unclean spirit, mind you a demon, a fallen angel, goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, and he finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house or my abode or my resting place from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. This is important because Jesus is taking a a situation that's plausible, that happens. And he's making an analogy to the societies that he would go into. He would do the miracles. He would teach. The presence of God was among these people. And maybe they would clean up for a little bit. But it was this dabbling back and forth. A little bit of God, a little bit of world. A little bit of God. And I mean headlong into the world, just willfully just going back and forth. And he said that these cities would be judged more harshly than other cities because his presence were there. And they received that presence, but they still rejected him. Brothers and sisters, this is something, a real warning not to dabble in the spiritual realm. We can't go back and forth between being headlong into saying that we're saved and then going headlong and, and playing with Ouija boards and trying to do necromancy and all that kind of stuff. You know. And that's an extreme. But you know what I'm saying here. And I've seen folks who have done this and all it does is causes them great instability in their life. And they say, oh, why? And you explain it to them, that's not the answer they want. They want the symptoms to be relieved, but they don't want the source of the disease to be cured. And they will still trip over themselves. They will still you know, have difficulties if they don't get right with the Lord. So I think that's something to... But you know what? God still can, can take them away. He can still remove demons. Now, there are some um, uh, denominations that pretty much there's a demon under every rock. If you have a problem smoking cigarettes, they're going to say you have the demon of smoking cigarettes. I mean, it gets ridiculous. So that's the other extreme. Everything's the devil's fault, and we have no personal responsibility. That's absurd. Every week, somebody's laying hands on you, trying to cast out the demon. It's not reflected in Scripture. So let's put everything into totality here. So moving on. Jesus says, and this is a nice way of saying it in Mark's Gospel. He says, be quiet and come out of him. Literally in the Greek, it means be muzzled. In our vernacular, shut your mouth. There are some that have this picture of Jesus as a weak-willed, effeminate son of God walking around pasty skin with, with flowers in his hair. He had command of the demonic realm. He allowed them a certain amount of latitude, and they said, that's it, shut your mouth and get out. And they had to obey him. This is amazing. He's having a discussion with demons and they're talking about they're they're a little put off if you look at the other gospels. They don't know what why he's coming. They don't understand, you know, they know the scripture. And they know that the they know end times because they know the Bible. So Jesus comes along and they're really nervous about this because he's in their presence and he, they probably think he is gonna send this out. Remember the one where he sent them into the pigs? well, we don't know what to do, Jesus. Are you sending us to be tortured before the time? When you put the scripture all together, it's a fascinating picture of the judgment of the demonic realm. So these demons, they're a little confused. They don't know what his, what his angle is, what he's doing there. And, and they start to reveal who he is, his identity. So here you have, it's almost a soliloquy and a side between Jesus and the demons, and everyone else is listening, and they're probably completely puzzled. How many times did Jesus say to his own disciples that you're not even going to understand this until later on? Just write it down. Just remember, just hold it in your hearts. So he's having this discussion with demons that go beyond time and space. Fascinating stuff. And everybody's kind of befuddled by the whole thing until they see the man convulse and the demons leave. Wild stuff, isn't it? This is what I find amazing, is that the demons knew upon contact that Jesus is God, but the Jehovah Witnesses and Unitarians are still unconvinced. How could that be? You know? Jesus said to them, now's not the time. I'll decide when I present myself, and you're not going to reveal it beforehand. So shut up and get out of the man. And they did. And they convulsed him, but they had to leave. It's another interesting point in that a demon doesn't want to leave easily. It's really a spiritual battle. It's a war out there. And when they gain ground, as we read in, in Matthew chapter 12, they don't want to lose that ground. When they have to leave, they'll find more creepy, scary, worse than themselves, and they'll come back and they'll try to really dig their cleats in and hang on to that person for dear life. So as you can see, even when he made them leave, they threw the man around, they convulsed him, and they finally came out of him. And I think that's true today. Some people have demons. And sadly enough, some people like their demons. Some people, I think, sold their soul to get whatever they could in this world. That's a scary thought. Well, we're going to end there. And I'm going to say this, that I believe that the people back then were watching this and they were totally blown away and excited about what Jesus was doing. I believe those fishermen didn't really miss fishing once they left because they got to see that they were able to catch people. Like Jesus said, you'll be fishers of men. But I submit to you, in 2014 in New Jersey, we can be just as excited about what the Lord is doing in our communities, in our families, in our schools, right? I mean, it's depressing when you read the paper, but the Lord wants to empower you to do something about that, to make a little bit of difference in your realm. And I love it when people come to me. I can't get to be the pastors, the pastor's wives. We can't get to all these places, and you come up to us and say, Hey, in my job, in my school, this is what's going on. That's really exciting. We get excited about that. So we are excited about what the Lord's going to do in 2014. Why is it so exciting? Because much of Bible prophecy has been fulfilled, and as we speak, it's still being fulfilled. Look at the Middle East, and then go look at your scripture in the Old Testament. The Lord is still saving souls. He's still using his followers to catch men and women. He's still inspiring people, and he's still maturing to eventually use for his glory. And I think this is appropriate, but if you don't mind, I'm going to read, this is an article. It actually says the top 10 commonly broken New Year's resolutions. So these are the top 10, but they're also the top 10 in how people break them. And I'm just going to read a few of them, and you know them. You can probably memorize them. Um, so for 2014, people say, I'm going to lose weight. You know, I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to quit smoking. I'm going to drink less alcohol. I'm going to eat healthier. I'm going to try to get out of debt. I'm going to be less stressed. I'm going to volunteer. I submit to you this. Instead of making New Year's resolutions that really are meaningless, and and a lot of stuff is good, please don't get me wrong. My suggestion for New Year's is that we resolve to put things aside in our lives that don't matter that don't have eternal consequences. And then in 2014, we resolved to serving the Lord because he can do some amazing things through each one of you in this room. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for your word as always. What a blessing it is. And just to see, uh, Lord, I, you know, I always say this, whether it's a, a DVD or a much better equipment.